Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspective brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. Hi, everyone. This is Danielle. Pro Bono Perspectives had a fantastic initial season, thanks to all of our guests and listeners. And we wanted to give you a brief roundup before we said goodbye for the year. We hit on so many important topics this season. And as my team and I were thinking about what should we share with our listeners, it was really hard to choose. But there were a couple of themes that came up time and time again. The first that we saw was a continuing change in our definition of philanthropy. So we all know that social good is no longer relegated to the nonprofit sector and that social enterprise, traditional business, and the public sector are all thinking about how we can work together to create a more just society. And that these institutions are realizing that these enormous challenges such as climate change, affordable housing, affordable health care are not going to be solved by any one actor, by one sector, by one approach. And while it's still incredibly challenging to actually do that working together, we're all still working really hard at that, there's just a much stronger recognition that it's necessary. Companies in particular are moving past the transactional giving and the traditional power dynamics of philanthropy to thinking of their social sector partners as true partners. I was having a conversation recently with a colleague who runs giving at a large multinational corporation who put it best when she said, we don't want to be program funders. We want to be problem solvers. And it's that very concept that has companies supporting their grant dollars with their expertise, really rolling up their sleeves with their community partners. And it's been really exciting to see that come to life. Here's what our guest this season had to say. There's been a huge increase in the volume of corporate volunteerism across the country and a bigger commitment to that. Um, I think some of that is both the company's desire and I think some of it is that they're also bringing in a workforce that expects service and for their companies um, to not just um, do business but to do it well and to do it quote unquote right. So as we're dealing with that, I think there's also therefore an increased demand from corporations uh, I am guessing, um, as, as we often hear here at New York Cares, that there is an increased question about how can pro bono service um, really 
uh, help the nonprofit sector uh, and companies very much wanting to gauge on that level, as well as individuals. Um, we also have a younger generation who much more wants to use their skills in volunteering than the generations before them. When I think of Impact 2030, and I think of, as you said, and being the private sector-led initiative in collaboration with the UN uh, and the public and social sectors that has this unique mission of activating businesses' human capital through employee volunteer programs to achieve the sustainable development goals, these big, lofty global goals. And I think of the work of Impact 2030 is doing to activate businesses around the SDGs. Uh, to foster new collaborations uh, and to work to develop a universal measurement framework for employee volunteering uh, along with other stakeholders. You know, my job, my role as a regional voice lead for that initiative is to help bring that work to New England to here in, in Boston, Massachusetts, and across New England uh, by engaging other business partners, helping to bring them to the table, helping to rally them around the sustainable development goals, uh, and helping to uh, translate how these big lofty global goals uh, relate to tangible local action, uh, whether that's in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, or New Hampshire or Maine or Rhode Island or Hartford, Connecticut, uh, making those big lofty global goals highly localized for those local communities and helping to bring together those partners that are gonna help make it happen. And I think when I decided to get involved with Impact 2030, um, it really was a, a little bit of a, a tough decision. You know, I lead CSR for Berkshire Bank, which we're by no means a small company, but we're also by no means a large company. We have a, a very regional presence in the Northeastern uh, United States and in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, and when Berkshire Bank uh, joined Impact 2030, uh, they were the first small and mid-sized U.S. company to get involved. And I think we as a business and me personally uh, felt very strongly that small and medium-sized enterprises had a very important role uh, to play if we wanted to achieve the S SDGs. And we needed to have them have a voice at the table, working alongside the global partners to help make the SDGs local. At Common Impact, we think a lot about the areas where talent can be enforced for good in our society. And one area and another theme that came up for us this season that we've been exploring is disaster resiliency. And this is an area where businesses are incredibly generous and are becoming even more generous. And that generosity is not always as informed as it could be in having the most intentional impact. What do I mean by that? Disaster philanthropy is one of the fastest growing areas of investment. And right now, 98% of that giving goes towards immediate relief, which is incredibly important investment and needed. But less than 2% of giving and support goes to mitigation, preparation, and resiliency, ensuring that our communities are equipped to weather upcoming disasters. And a recent conference board study that came out earlier this year demonstrated that companies are anticipating a continued rise in disasters and are updating their own disaster response plans and their own resiliency plans to manage those more frequent occurrences. 
So even though companies know that increased disaster, man-made and natural, are coming, they haven't translated their own mitigation strategies to their philanthropy. And this is a place where, and this is where Common Impact gets really excited, (laughs) where resiliency can be truly supported by skills-based volunteering, skilled volunteering, the talents and expertise of private sector, but really any individuals can play a particularly strong role in equipping organizations to better weather disaster as it arises and ensure that the staff and the operations and the service recipients of community organizations are not impacted by the acute rise in needs or the dip in resources that come alongside man-made and natural disasters. So I encourage you, we've done a lot of thinking about this at Common Impact, I encourage you to check out more in our report on our um, Common Impact site www.commonimpact.org. The report is called Disaster Response from Relief to Resiliency. And that report, our approach, and just the industry's thinking of this has been so informed by some of the guests that we had on Pro Bono Perspectives this season. We learned so much from them and would love for you to listen in to hear what leaders from Tom's Facebook, International Medical Corps, and Interfaith Ministries had to say about this incredibly important topic. The first thing to do is to really ensure that it aligns with your values and that you believe in what you're talking about and what you're working on. And so that's the first and most important question to ask yourself. Uh, Is this authentic to us? Can we be credible in this space? Or are we just jumping on a bandwagon or a cultural moment? And that's a hard question to ask yourself. You have to really, you know, it's a real honest moment, Um, but it's critical because everything waterfalls from there. Um, so once we could answer yes to that, then the next step was for us to enter the space very humbly. And I think with other things that we decide to take on, that's sort of step one. We are not the experts, but we know how to work with giving partners or nonprofit organizations that are experts. And so we do have an infrastructure here at Tom's. We're very lucky to have, you know, 12 people on a giving team that have international development expertise, public, public health expertise. So they are, they are truly experts in their field, know how to work with nonprofit organizations. And so entering humbly, surrounding ourselves with the experts, learning as much as we can, and then putting our money where our mouth is, were sort of those fundamental things that I think can apply to natural disasters. They can apply to man-made disasters. They can apply to issues where you're taking a stand. Um, but I think the for-profit and nonprofit, that ecosystem that we can create together is really, really important. And I believe the way great things can happen to make the world better. Tom's is, you know, we're no stranger to criticism. And so it kind of doesn't scare us very much, right? And I think more companies need to get comfortable with that to say, yeah, not everyone's going to love this, but it's the right thing to do. Or it's the right thing for us to do. This is a space we should be engaging in. Uh, and, and that's just that. It's that process of first ensuring that you can do it authentically. You can do it with credibility. 
because I do think this new, really savvy customer, they see right through it. Um, if you're not those two things, they're going to be, you know, even less interested. Uh, and some of the data says, you know, there's data out there that says consumers will respect you more and be more interested in you as a brand, even if they don't believe in what you're standing for. If you do nothing, you are, you risk, you run the risk of becoming irrelevant. And that's much worse than having someone say, I don't like that stand you took, but I respect and admire you for having a point of view. In the disaster space, there's a lot of talk about resilience and it's about better infrastructure. Preparedness is a huge piece of resilience. But I was motivated by the idea that by the kind of the social connections being an important component of bouncing back. I mean, that's what resilience is, is bouncing back and being stronger the next time. And in a world where people are, you know, increasingly isolated, I think Facebook had this opportunity to play a role in bringing people together when they most need to be connected to each other. And so that's what really motivated me on safety check. And I worked really hard I had a, you know, pretty integral role in the development and then the implementation of that product over the course of a number of years. And I always came back to this idea of building resilience. And now they've built, the team has built out this suite of products and includes, includes community help, which is, um, you know, flooding in, in Hurricane Harvey is a good example. There was ma obviously massive flooding across Houston. People needed places to stay. There were people who had places to stay, to stay, but they didn't know each other necessarily. And so we created this space where people can offer help, look for help. Organizations can offer information in this space. So just trying to build out, to build more resilience. It's not just about letting someone know you're okay or finding out that someone's okay. It's like, how do we take it to the next step? How can people help each other? And then adding in a fundraising component, giving people a really easy way to raise money for the community in need or even individuals who might be in need and, and kind of having it all in this one space, the overarching goal being strengthening people's resilience. How do you keep people, institutions engaged in this work when you're not looking at a current disaster that's happening? Right. It really is one of the um, biggest challenges to the work that we do. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of conversation, um, particularly lately, but, you know, really over the past several years about, you know, how do you build local capacity? How do you build local resilience? Um, you know, how do you build, uh, you know, local disaster response management and risk reduction and all of those things that we all know as a response community would go so far in in helping to really save lives when a disaster happens um you know and and one of the challenging things about that is that takes that takes time um you know and um i was part of a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago where we were really talking through the fact that you know it's not even just lessons learned it's having the time and space and resources to apply those lessons and that that's really a gap in the response community is is creating the resources and the space and the patience um, to apply the lessons learned and to really make sure that communities that are most at risk um, you know have the opportunity to 
to increase their own capacity. Um, so it's an ongoing conversation for us. It's, it's something that we, and again, because we do have these, um, you know, very kind of in-depth kind of, of partnerships with the groups that we work with, we look to have those conversations. And, you know, when a disaster strikes, certainly deploy the resources that we want to, but then, you know, in the aftermath, really talk through why it's important for us to stay through recovery what the things we're going to do and, and put in place are, um, and really look at, um, you know, how we then work together to build local capacity um, and build our own capacity to respond better and faster and to provide that training. And so it, it very much is an ongoing conversation and I think also speaks to the fact um, that that you do have to have those more in-depth partnerships if you want to create that kind of change um, on the ground and in, in communities that are, are most vulnerable. Um, it is heartening, though. I mean, and it, it is, um, you know, a very positive development that this conversation is happening. I think there's been a um, certainly I've seen um, over the years working at International Medical Corps, you know, there has been a change in how companies are looking at disaster response and how they're giving, um, you know, while, you know, donations in the immediate aftermath of a disaster continue to be really important. We are seeing a lot of organizations who will um, take a little bit of a different model. We've got companies that will say, we're going to give you these funds, but we actually want you to focus them on recovery efforts um, or, you know, tell us, you know, what some of the long-term needs are or who will provide funding for the immediate response and then allow us to come back and, and talk to them about recovery. Um, so that is changing. Um, and that's, um, that's fantastic news because that really is the way that we're going to help communities withstand future disasters. The needs of our community didn't match up with the wonderful generosity that we were seeing coming to our community with no plan on how to distribute it. And so what we recognized is that we really needed a plan and a communication system between nonprofits. So when the YMCA got 100 mattresses, they could say to the Salvation Army, you know, we only need 20 of these. Do you need 80? And things like that. And so that brought us to common impact and ultimately to fidelity to try to set forth a communications protocol that during a uh, another storm or natural disaster, that we would be better prepared to share uh, the wonderful generosity of others who want to give to our community. And what we realized is that we shouldn't wait till the disaster to happen that we were much better off getting people used to this communication strategy and using it day to day so that it could just be amplified and broadened during a storm or a natural disaster. And it's something that we hope uh, to develop into a meaningful platform where ultimately through our partnership with Common Impact and Fidelity that other communities around the nation will be able to take advantage of this communication system. And our last trend for 2019 was the increasing tide of corporate activism, largely driven by employee demand. And this culture you mentioned earlier of companies moving beyond being pure philanthropic actors to real community actors. 
employees have come to expect that their leadership take stand on social issues and are exacting the power they have to ensure that their voices are heard. And employees have a lot of power right now. The labor market is very strong for employees and industries, companies are vying for talent. And so they are listening to their employees more than ever. Edelman's 2019 Trust Barometer, which is an annual study that surveys corporate brand and perception, labels it the new employee-employer contract and says that 58% of the general population of employees look to their employer to be a trustworthy source of information about contentious social issues, and a majority of them expect their employer to take a stand on those issues. So some companies are doing it because they're looking to build their brand or their business or their employee morale, and some are doing it because it's just the right thing to do from their perspective. But either way, 2020 saw, 2019 rather, saw a much more activity in brands taking stands, as our friends from 3BL Forum call it. Here's the snapshot from our guest this season. One of the biggest shifts is is the generational interest in volunteerism and the motivation for doing that. Um, particularly, you know, as as a lot of us talk about the millennial generation, which I mean, in many ways, is a flawed description because it lumps together fifteen years of of people and says they're all behaving the same. So I'm not really sure how true that is, um, uh, uh, or if that isn't a little more fluid than that. But you know, one of the nice things. Things that we're seeing is that there's a much deeper commitment to social justice. Uh, here at New York Cares, by the way, about 70% of our volunteers are between the ages of 18 and 35. And so we're fortunate to be engaging a younger demographic. Uh, and as we're reaching out about motivations, we are hearing, you know, 10 years ago, main motivator was making New York City a better place to live. The main motivator now is social justice and or racial equity and being a participant in that change, the sense of helping to write a balance. So I think there's a huge influence for all of us there um, that is uh, with the changing of motivations, um, how we present our work. And the responsibility we have to engage uh, a generation that, frankly, wants this also to be part of an educational experience, a development experience, a bonding experience uh, in ways that no generation before them has wanted. And that's a wrap. Thank you to our guests and our listeners who made our inaugural season such a success and so fun. You've helped inspire and educate us, and we hope we've done the same for you. We've got a fantastic new season lined up that launches in January with a whole new roster of social impact leaders and friends who are ready to help us navigate 2020. In the meantime, from the team at Common Impact, we send you thoughts of gratitude, of rest, and warmth for the end of your holiday season, and we will see you in 2020. Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at www.commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune into our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.